morning. I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a situation like this. I'm sure many of you have. Uh, you decide that you want to rent or go see a, a movie. You decide that you want to rent or go see a movie. Um, of course, if you're like us and you have young kids, uh, you're in that span of life where about uh, for 15 years, it doesn't matter what you want to see. Um, what you're going to be seeing is an animated motion picture, regardless of what your particular uh, ilk of entertainment might be. Um, so if you're a passive consumer like me and uh, want to just occasionally veg in front of some mindless media in front of the TV, um, then your decision is a hard one. If you're if, if you're going to make that decision about what you want to see as a movie uh, or, or rent, you always make that kind of decision sort of based on what mood you're in, sort of your emotional state at the time. What do you want to see? I, I don't know. What, what do you want to see? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of feeling like this. Well, I'm feeling like this. And you get into this discussion like you do about restaurants and all these choices that we have to make in life. If you want... To, uh, to laugh, you watch a comedy. If you want to cry and to cuddle up close to that special someone, well, then you're a woman. Uh, no. <laughs> if, if that's you, then, then you obviously you get a romance. You get, you get something that's a feel-good romance uh, movie. And then if you're a real man then you're probably going to be in the mood for adventure and, and action, and you may end up getting like a, a Clint Eastwood movie or Chuck Norris if you're hardcore. Um, but if you want to be in suspense, you get a cliffhanger. You get, you get a mystery. You get a whodunit kind of movie. You choose something like that because with, with cliffhangers, you don't know until the last five minutes how everything is going to turn out. You may not have any idea who done it until the surprise ending. And if your home address is here on earth, and it's July 3rd on a weekend when we recognize our independence and a time when we can enjoy the blessings of God to gather in worship as we have, and you're also a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need to realize that you're part of a story that is a cliffhanger. Because the ending of this story, the story of the people of God, is as yet in part unknown. The scary part of this particular cliffhanger is that most of us who A, live in America, and B, are Christians, have a sense that this story is kind of headed in a scary direction. We all know quite well that our nation is in trouble. Whatever you want to say about our nation's history, whether it was founded on God's word or not, whatever you believe about where we've come from in our nation's history, we can all agree that there are chinks in the armor of our nation and that we as a people are in trouble. A little over a year ago, 
I'll give you some examples. A little over a year ago, it came to light that a publishing company named Wilder Publications was printing copies of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, which is great. <laughs> Here's the scary part. It came with this warning label on them. Here's a picture of it here. It says this, if you can't read it. This book is a product of its time and does not reflect the same values as it would if it were written today. Parents might wish to discuss with their children how views on race, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and interpersonal relations have changed since this book was written before allowing them to read this classic work. In other words, these ignorant people of yesteryear really didn't know what they were talking about back then. So take it with a grain of salt. That's the message there. And, and, and while the fortunes of the kingdom of God do not rise and fall with what some publishing company says about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, it does show, friend, friends, that there are cracks in the foundation of our country. Tolerance for opposing viewpoints has become a tolerance for sin. Just last year, the Supreme Court ruled by a five to four vote that campus organizations of a religious nature must allow members who don't have to believe in the tenets of that particular organization. If you're confused, think of it like this. Uh, you can now have uh, at, at, at a, an institution of, of higher education, at any institution of higher education in the United States, there are laws that say you can have a pro-life group at a college that cannot deny membership to someone who is pro-choice, and that person can hold office. The opposite is also true. You could be a Christian and be president of an atheist club. There are cracks in the chink of the armor of our nation's foundations, friends. Last year in Massachusetts, this will be my last example of this, last year in Massachusetts there was a school board that unanimously passed a policy allowing the school to distribute free condoms to elementary students upon their request. The policy even requires that school officials Keep it confidential so that parents will never know if their child has requested them. Whatever America you grew up in, that America is no longer. And we live in a different world. And whatever your political persuasion, we have very clearly become a people whose God is not the Lord, but whose God has become money and materialism and security and safety and, especially for our purposes today, tolerance of sin. The corrupt notion, for example, of the American dream has trumped our personal responsibility to be a person of character. So I want to ask the question, what is a nation? What is a nation? 
Now, at the very outset, we need to very clearly what define what I, what I mean by nation and what I think Scripture means by nation because already some of you think I'm going political today, and I'm not. And I'll prove it to you soon enough. In fact, by the end of this, some of you will mistakenly think that I am speaking out against the United States of America. And that is also not true. What I am speaking against today from Scripture, and let me be clear about this, is that nation building, as we've been taught it, and that we have attached our own lives to, can become a kind of false hope in a way that replaces our personal responsibility and repentant prayer. I want to say that again. What I'm speaking against is nation building as we have been taught it, as we've been, as we've been raised from birth to believe is the goal of what a nation should be about. We have attached our lives to something that is a false hope in a way that has replaced our personal responsibility and the role of repentant prayer. So get your Bibles ready. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis today where we're going to learn about what this idea of nationhood is from the Scripture in the beginning. Um, I'm going to take just a second here to tell you that in a couple weeks, uh, in three or four weeks, uh, we're going to start a long verse-by-verse series in Genesis. Uh, so some of this is going to be prelude to some of those themes uh, we'll talk about soon. So uh, get your Bibles ready. We're starting in Genesis today. The Hebrew word for nation, if you're taking notes, the Hebrew word for nation comes to us first in Genesis, the 10th chapter. In Genesis 10, where it lists the nations at the time. It lists the ethnic groups that were descended from Noah. Because if you'll remember, God was was punishing the world for its rebellion against him, for its sin. And then he was remaking his people, remaking the nation through the descendants of Noah as sort of a picture of God's redemptive plan. So there in Genesis, they were dispersed as nations. The word nation there is used uh, at the beginning of that chapter in uh, verse 5 where it talks about um, the coastland peoples were spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans. And it says in their nations. Three other times in that chapter that word shows up. But that word nation, it takes on a special emphasis in Genesis chapter 12. Turn there for a moment with me if you would to the 12th chapter of Genesis. Uh, this, this chapter is where we first encounter the specifics of God's covenant promise to Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation. So right at the beginning, we hear about Abraham the missionary. In verse 1, uh, God calls Abraham, at this time named Abram, he calls him to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now look at verse 2. It says this. I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. That word there for nation is simply a word that means people. It's just a word that means 
a bunch of people who, who, who enjoy the same culture and the same language and the same genealogy, uh, the same area and geography. That word there, goyim, G-O-Y-I-M, it just means people. So a nation is just a bunch of people. At this point, it's not even a governmental structure. It's not a particular kind of political system as we've come to understand the term nation. We talk about that nation over there being a certain type of state and political system. That came later. At first, a nation is just a group of people. So in its purest form, that word is just a group of people, at least in the beginning of Scripture. Now, because because of the Jews' self-righteousness and their own messed-up notions of what it meant to be God's people because they thought that they were the, the only recipients of God's blessing, and that the Messiah was meant just for them, by the time of the New Testament, this word, this word for nation, was twisted. Twisted into the meaning that many of us know, which is non-Jew. For some of the Jews, this word nations began to describe all of those folks the non-Jews, the non-blessed, the not one of us. It was twisted into that kind of meaning. It became, for many of the Jews even, a racial slur against those who were not considered to receive special favor from God. Now, don't pick them out for twisting God's plan, his original intent, friends. There is no doubt in my mind that we would have done the same thing and that we have. So in the beginning of Scripture, it was simply a word that meant people. And that was because of this. God was gathering for himself a group of people who would be subject to him. That was God's project in nationhood, to gather a people that would be his own. That's a nation. So another important thing for us to know, and uh, we see this even from Genesis 12 here, is that God's blessing wasn't meant strictly for the Jews. I've talked about this before. I want to show you where it says that. Uh, in, in, In chapter 12, verse 2, we've read that part at the beginning. It says, I will make of you a great nation. And it says, and it clarifies what that means. It says, I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so God's gathering of of this people to himself was for his purposes. His purposes to be a blessing to others. Right from the beginning of Scripture, we see that God is a missionary God. He was calling Abraham to himself to send him out so that they, the nation, would bless others. So when we say, in the beginning God created, that is a missionary kind of move. God created when he didn't have to. From the beginning of Scripture, nationhood is something that was meant for God's purposes (laughs) and not for ours. So what it means is this. This was never about nation building as they thought it and as we've come to understand it. Clear as day, In the beginning of Scripture, 
We are taught that God's goal is gathering for himself. God's goal is us, the people of God, together becoming a nation on God's terms so that he would be king, capital K. So here's the blank in your sermon notes there. God's goal is that we become a nation, a people who are set apart for God's purposes. A people set apart for God's purposes. And today, we call that the church. So please set clearly in your mind for today's sermon that what we are talking about is the closest thing to a Christian nation that could possibly ever happen is the church following its king, capital K. So it's why in our passage for today, in 2 Chronicles seven fifteen, it says this. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. That is, if my people who are by, called by my name, that's, that's us. So when we talk about being a nation, what we mean is us, the people of God, called by his name to call him king. So what we're talking about today is it's not really about politics or, or government or even the United States of America. Though we enjoy at this moment freedom of worship that many people around the world do not currently enjoy. And that's something worth enjoying and celebrating. And even though this, this country is, is obviously the specific political and, and geographical context that we know and have experienced, please know that those kinds of categories are not what the Old Testament had in mind. So from the very outset of Scripture, God is speaking of building for himself a city and a people and a nation. And in this sense, where he alone reigns as king, capital K. But, but here's the thing. The unwritten part of this story, this kind of, of, of godly nation building on God's terms, it won't finish here on earth until he comes to finish that work for us at the consummation of time. And the sad part of this story is that we have turned this project of making for himself a nation, into our project of making ourselves powerful. Don't get me wrong. I'm all about a good military that can take care of the bad guy. I'm all for us protecting the liberties that we know. But any, any sort of nation-building where we replace our responsibility to be people who are repentantly praying to our King, capital K, becomes an idol, like anything. The problem is, we have turned his project of nationhood and protecting us into his own people, into our project. Just think of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. 
just before God calls Abram in chapter 12, the people were gathered together and they said to one another, it's right there in Genesis, the 11th chapter, verse 4. Genesis 11, chapter 4. He says this. This is the people talking to themselves. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In fact, it's exactly in response to this that God called Abram in chapter 12. It is against the people's selfish desire for power and prestige that dethrones God that he responds to when he calls Abram. When he says, I covenant with you because you're not going to be able to do this without me. He calls Abraham and covenants with him to go away and to become that people set apart for his purposes. So God's project, I'm sorry, is not nation building as we've come to understand it. In other words, the goal is not and never has been America. I'm glad it's used as a tool for good in the world, and it should be, and we should have a part of that. We'll talk about that in a second. But the goal has never been the reign of capitalism, though I vote capitalist. <laughs> the reign of democracy around the world will not save people, though I'm all for support supporting policies that do. But we must get straight that our hope has never rested with a human structure. Our hope cannot rest on human, man-made, fallible structures of moving chess pieces around the board. The goal always has been and always will be the church as God's nation of people calling him king. The goal always has been and it always will be the reign of the kingdom of God announced by and made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. The closest thing that we will ever have to a nation known as Christians is when we are people of repentant and humble prayer seeking God's face together. The church is just the group of people who bear the name of Christ and are joined together for His purposes. So we, the church, are the group of people who are being built into that nation as God understands it, where He is King. The disconnect, the hard part of this the problem with this, the problem about which we need to be in repentant prayer, humbly laying before God, is this. We are the ones who have diluted what it means to be a Christian. We are the ones who have diluted what it means to be a follower of Christ, not a school board. Not the Supreme Court. Not a publishing company. Friends, 
we are the ones who have become soft. We are the ones who have compromised. In churches all across this great nation, it is way too easy to be a Christian in name only. It is functionally a-okay for someone to go through the motions once every few weeks and have the mistaken idea that they are meaningfully a part of the body of Christ because we have let them think that. So, so how do we restore our nation to that level of moral fiber and character? For many of us, we think, we think the answer goes something like this. Well, we need people, we need godly people to run for office. We need Christians to register to vote so that when the election rolls around, we have Christians who will go to the polls and exercise their right to vote, looking at the issues where the Bible speaks and allow God's word to guide their choices. That's a good thing. I hope you do it. I do it. Because I believe it's part of my civic responsibility and duty to participate as I can in that kind of system. For most of us, though, those are our first thoughts for how we restore a nation to God. But I, I, I want to tell you that I don't believe those thoughts are God's thoughts. That list I just shared is different than I think the list God shares with us in Scripture. Those things I shared with you are good things, and I hope you do them, and shame on you if you don't. But don't miss this. They are way down the list compared to our personal responsibility first to the God of the universe. God himself shared his own list for the nation of Israel. When he saw some cracks in their national foundation, what he said to them was this, Second Chronicles 7. He said, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and they pray and they seek my face and they turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We have been conditioned to point fingers and to levy the blame at everyone else somewhere else. It's the Republicans, it's the Democrats, it's Congress, it's Senate, it's Obama, it's, it's Bush for what he gave to Obama. We blame the godless media, we blame empty Hollywood movies, we blame vapid video games, and many of these things do turn your brains to mush, yes. But God takes the focus off those things and he points to us as individuals. He points the spotlight on us when he says, if my people, those who follow me, those who bear my name. So instead of blaming everybody else or criticizing someone else out there somewhere who is faceless and nameless, whom you've never met in your life, Take a look at your own life and your own heart and your own family and your own behaviors. As families and as a nation, our politics can help us, but they are not the answer. Our government can help us live comfortable lives, but it cannot and will not save us. And it is absolutely unrealistic to think that spiritual revival is going to start in the White House. It's going to start in our homes and in our families and in our hearts 
and in our churches as the gathered people of God. As the nation where God is King, capital K. So stop worrying about D.C. until you've taken a look at your own heart. So Second Chronicles says we must humble ourselves, empty ourselves of pride and selfish ambition. We've got to do our parts in stemming the tide of moral relativism, of casual Christianity, of, of ethical decline, of the encroachment of sin on our own lives. So what is the purpose of the church if we do not look different than the rest of the world? Make darn well sure, friends, that your membership in the body of Christ isn't just another club that you put on a resume. We at First Christian Church have a God-given responsibility to challenge one another to a life of humble and repentant prayer and to a life of holiness before a perfect and infinite and sinless God. Do you want to know what has happened to our country for the last number of decades? The bailout has been from Christians who have caved into the culture around us. If our country could somehow speak to us, I think it would have self-indicting words to say. As one preacher says, it would say, in our desire to fulfill our lusts, we have fractured our families. In our efforts to cover our mistakes, we have allowed 51 million abortions to take place. In our quest for more and more possessions, we've racked up huge debts, which rob us of our joy. In our attempts to be tolerant, we've discounted the sanctity of marriage. In our search for the fountain of youth, we've stopped listening to the wisdom of the elderly, in our desire for wealth, we have communicated in gold we trust. And in our efforts for political correctness, we have neutered the power of our own Christian witness. And in our desire to fit in, we have forsaken our first love. Lord, we ask for you that you would put in our hearts the prayer that you gave to Abraham Lincoln many years ago. As we pray this prayer that you gave to him in our hearts and in our minds, we ask, Lord, that you would move in us. As he said, Lord, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and in prosperity. We have grown in numbers and wealth and in power as, as no nation before us has ever grown. But we have forgotten you, O oh God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of those blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. 
too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and for forgiveness. And Lord, here today, in 2011, may we do the same. May we say it, and may we mean it. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In just a moment, Eric's going to come up and start to lead us in a song here. Uh, and while, while he does that, I want us to just spend a few more moments together. Uh, we're in a, a series about prayer. Uh, so instead of just talking about it, we want to do that. So uh, I'm going to lead us for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to, to close your eyes uh, for just a few more minutes as we spend some more time in prayer together. And uh, I'll lead us through that time. Let's go ahead and pray some more together. Father, we come to you with a posture of humility and face-down repentance because we are aware, Lord, that you have called us to something so much bigger and greater than the uh, silly goals and the silly purposes in our lives that we have uh, gone after. So, so, Lord, we come to you with a posture, with a heart attitude that seeks to repent for the things we've held so dear as idols in our lives. We want to be a people who pray in a spirit that recognizes that you are the infinite, holy, and perfect God and that we are not. Also, Lord, we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit in a way that throughout our day and throughout the week reminds us of the things that are on your heart about which we need to be praying. Lord, it's easy for us to pray about things that uh, are immediate feelings and needs and to forget the larger, more important goals you have for us as people and as families, as a community, as a congregation, as a country of people. Father, you tell us in First Timothy, the second chapter, that we are called to pray for our leaders and for our nation. And so we do that now. We pray for those who are in authority in those human structures of government and political power. Make them men and women who repent, who have a posture of humility and prayerful dependence upon you, Lord, so that their answers are not from them, but from you. We think of leaders in our own congregation. We think of leaders in our own community. We think of people among us as we go out from this place, that we would be praying for one another to be people who are called by your name to be a blessing to the world. And so we ask, Lord, that you would 
Continue to shape us into people who are gathered around your throne because you are our king. Amen. Oh.